You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, hi everybody and welcome back to Who Did What Now, the history podcast that is not your history class, with me, your, um, erratic host, (laughs) Katie Charlwood, an avid TikToker and reader of books. Well... Tis Shrove Tuesday, and um, yeah, so it's uh, it's about Easter is about to happen, and well, is it Easter? No, that is incorrect. Lent. We are coming up to Lent. Lent, if you don't know, is um, a Christian holiday. I think it's is it only Catholics who do it? I don't know. Anyway, so yeah, this goes back to when like Jesus, you know, the dude with the beard. Kept on in water and wine, you know the fella. He spent 40 days and 40 nights in the desert, uh, apparently, and uh, resisted temptation and... Yeah, so he apparently had no food or drink for like however many days. 40 days and 40 nights? Which, I don't know, either this dude was like some super survivalist, because um, the body can only last like three days without water, but like whatever. Uh, I'm not gonna. I'm not going to get into this little fandango. None of everyone around me is giving up stuff like chocolate and booze and joy. And I'm here like, um, no. <laughs> um, I'm like, listen, if y'all are going to do it, I'll do it too. But like, um, just because it's, it's, maybe I should like stop buying books for, for Lent because I swear I went to the secret bookshop and I bought like a ton of stuff. But anyway, this week we're going to talk about Hatshepsut. I keep messing up. Hatshepsut, the female pharaoh. That's right. So I did promise we would go back a little bit. We have sort of been spending a lot of time in the last couple episodes, like in the 20th century. And I promised that we would go back in time a little bit. And... I mean, if you're going to go back, why don't you go back to 1473 BC or there or thereabouts? Decided we'd go back there. Oh, sources. <laughs> um, sources are history.com, the Smithsonian Magazine, uh, where are we now? Atlas Obscura, um, historyhat.com, 
I, I don't have any books on Hatshepsut, which is, um, oh, and also one, uh, like, minute and a half clip from Horrible Histories TV show. <laughs> and I'm fairly certain I had a book on Egypt from when I was oh, 12 years old or something, and it had Hatshepsut in it. But anyway, so Hatshepsut is known as being one of the great pharaohs. So here's the thing about ancient Egypt, like, the ancient Egyptian empire, it generally saw more women in power than, like, other cultures of the ancient world. I mean, in fairness, like, a lot of the deities and sort of the gods, if you will, of ancient Egypt, they were generally, a lot of them were female, and in general, ancient Egyptians believed and followed the wisdom of female rulers, to an extent, um, some might say. So, Hatshepsut, who I've practiced saying the name because I'm going to mess up some pronunciations here. I've, I've practiced, but I'm going to mess stuff up and I know it. So yeah, so yeah, Hatshepsut, she was the oldest of two daughters born to Thutmose I and his queen, Amez. And King and Thutmose I, he was known as this sort of charismatic leader and this great military um, general and... Also, the kind of guy who takes no shit. You know what I mean? Um, for example, um, when, as a warning, um, content warning for this one, actually, um, King Thutmose I is known for sailing home to Thebes with the naked body of a Nubian chieftain dangling from the bow of his ship. And so, yeah, he's got the naked body of this chieftain hanging off the front of his ship as a warning against anybody who would threaten his empire. And um, I'll be honest with you, I mean, think of when that was. That is terrifying. Um, But yeah, so this is the kind of, this was the father. This was her father. And, but um, Thutmose had, he had more than one wife. I should probably state that out, Um, state that first. So Amez was his primary wife and he had um second, but Thutmose the first also had these secondary wives. Right, so the way the sort of, um. So the way the pharaonic line worked, like the the laws of ascension, the rules of ascension, things like that, these these passed from father to son. That's kind of the whole point. I mean, they would they would like really prefer it to be the the son of the queen, the first wife, the main wife, wife prime of the pharaoh. But if there wasn't a male heir, they would go to one of the harem or secondary wives. A, um, a male offspring. <laughs> and so even though it, it is believed that Thutmose I had two sons with Queen Amez, uh, it would appear that both of those both of those boys died before their father. So with there being no direct male in the OG family line, the son of Thutmose I and Manofret, Thutmose II, becomes king. Hatshepsut's about 12 years old. And she becomes the queen of Egypt because she chooses to marry her half-brother, Thutmose II. So obviously, as a male, he would inherit the father's throne. And being, well, I don't know if this was more of a keeping the bloodlines pure weird concept that they had back in the day. Yeah, so this is about 1492 BC. And they have one daughter, Neferur. I've pronounced that wrong. Neferuri? And they have one daughter, Neferuri. So... Thutmose II dies young, about 1479 BC, so he's, I don't know, however old he is, and he has a secondary wife, and he has a 
infant son with a secondary wife. Seems to be a running theme. So yeah, Hatshepsut and Thutmose II had one child. Um, he had a son with his harem wife, Thutmose III. I don't know, no, I couldn't find the name of the second wife. But anyway, um, so generally, Thutmose III, he was obviously next in line to become the next pharaoh king of Egypt. As far as we know, he was still an infant and deemed too young to rule. And in general, like generally in the New Kingdom, the way it worked was the widowed queens would generally act as regents, you know, handling all the general stuff up until their son or their stepson or nephew or whatever they were at that point, blah, 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 nephew or whatever general male heir they were, um, came of age until they were old enough to actually rule. So Hatshepsut automatically is assigned this role. She automatically um, she automatically gets the duties. It's like, there you go, Hatshepsut. There you go. Have some fun. There you go. Enjoy ruling. Be good to the wee fella. No worries. There's her stepson. And she's going to handle all, like, you know, all the affairs of state. She's going to rule for him until he comes of age. Obviously, smart thing to do. So this goes on for almost, like, seven years. And, and Hatshepsut says, nah, I don't want to be regent. I want to be ruler. So she assumes the title and full powers of a pharaoh herself and becomes a co-ruler of Egypt with Thutmose III. Oh, I should probably explain that pharaohs were generally seen as uh, the gods in human forms. So they were kings and queens and so that that's, they were, I think the pharaoh was the... Uh, manifestation of the god Horus, if I'm not mistaken. But, so by becoming the pharaoh, you have a godlike status. You are a god amongst men. So initially they thought it was like the Egyptologists, again, men of a certain age and a certain time, believed that naked ambition, pure a pure power play, just steely ambition. But now that there's been a bit more research into it, it appears that there was a political crisis that another branch of the royal family, um, probably some sort of offshoot of a secondary wife or a brother or a cousin or something along those effects, was trying to usurp and claim the, the throne and claim all the power for themselves. And as a result, Hatshepsut was forced into the position of becoming pharaoh in order to protect the line for her stepson. But here's the thing, when... That most of the third comes of age. She can't just like step aside because when you become pharaoh, you're pharaoh for life. That's the deal. That's how it works. Okay, so fun fact. Hatshepsut is only like the third um, female ruler that we really know of. So like the first one was about Merniath. Merniath. Yeah, so she was about 2950 BC. Um, Merniath, uh, she was the wife of Jet and the mother of Den, but it is like it's sort of suspected that she she was a ruler in her own right. Um, one of the reasons why is like um, her name is on a list of early pharaohs on a seal in Den's tomb, and so this would make her the first female pharaoh in history. The second is Sobekneferu. Um, this is like the first female pharaoh of ancient Egypt that has actually been confirmed. Um, we actually have evidence of. So Sobekneferu, she was she ruled between like 1806 and 1802 BC. 
and she was the last ruler of the 12th dynasty. Like, and she, like, yeah, so she only reigned for, like, three years and ten months, so, like, it wasn't a long time, but she was the first that we really know about. So then there's Hatshepsut. So after Hatshepsut, there's the one that we all tend to know about, um, Nefertiti. Nefertiti was next. So, yeah, Nefertiti ruled from, like, 1353 to 1336 BC. And then it wasn't until... So, yeah, and then you've got, like, another 1,300 years until the next female ruler comes about, which is Cleopatra, who um, I'm sure most of you know about, but we will probably cover at some point anyway, because there's a lot of misconceptions about Cleopatra, and it bugs me, but we, we will cover that another time. So, yeah, Hatshepsut is like, I'm going to be Pharaoh. I'm going to make fetch happen. So, Hatshepsut, she's a smart cookie. She knows that this um, power grab, if you will, is like really controversial. So she, so not only does she have to like defend, you know, why she's legitimate. So like she has to get the family tree out, prove her lineage. And she also claims that her father had appointed her his successor um, and not Thutmose II, which in itself was a bit of a controversial issue, but there we go. In order to, like, really reinforce this concept of her being a strong ruler, pulls a Madonna and reinvents her image. So, effectively, statues and paintings, she is portrayed basically as a male pharaoh. You know, with the beard and the muscles. So, yeah, the official sort of representations of her, um, she wears um, symbols of the pharaoh. So, she has the cat, the headcloth, which is... With the so you've got the so you have the cat which is the the head cloth which is taught with Urias, um, which is that sort of snaky thing the snake the golden snake idea, and she wears a false beard and the and the shendit, which is like a kilt effectively. But in other imagery, um, she was also shown in sort of the traditional female clothing and styling, and be okay. So she's in a position of power and she's like, well, I need to surround myself with people who support me, people who are like on my side and aren't total asshats. So one of them is Senenmut, her chief minister. Now, why this is important is like the archaeologists that discovered Hatshepsut were, how do I put this, gentlemen scholars of a certain generation of um the past. So who... They would see this as, like, devious politics. These Egyptologists believed that Senenmut was her lover and a co-conspirator who actually helped her, like, usurp the throne, effectively. And um, for what basis? Um, Because he existed and she was a woman. <laughs> and obviously, uh, a woman couldn't get that kind of power without being deviant. <clears throat> <clears throat> And they also saw, like, the imagery that she used to portray herself as, like, deliberately uh, deceptive and devious and... I just... mm. And the whole sentiment thing, there's, like, not enough information. There isn't any evidence to support the fact that he was her lover. Like, it's not there. It doesn't exist. (laughs) It's like, ah... Clearly, this woman could not do this on her own. <laughs> but, like, if she really wanted, like, power all to herself, she could have just, you know, 
had felt most of her like under the thumb. She could have put him under house arrest, effectively. Pyramid arrest? No, no. They didn't live in pyramids. Pyramids were tombs. <laughs> no. Like, she had him training. He was learning to be, like, a warrior. Because, like, he was destined, apparently, to be, like, this warrior pharaoh. Which is generally the rule. Because, again, you are a king. God amongst men. But, yeah, so even though she dressed in the traditional male pharaoh regalia with the fake beard and everything else that, that came with it, the inscriptions on her statues and things like that have, you know, they're generally feminine. So, like, daughter of Ray. So, Hatshepsut actually takes a new name. Uh, which we don't really hear very often. Um, it's called Matkar, Matkare. They think this means truth and soul of the sun god, Ray. And by taking on this name, um, Hatshepsut is telling the Egyptian people that she has the capability and the power to legitimately speak directly with the gods, as pharaohs could, you know, that sort of way. And one of the ways they did, they sort of, proved this and showed this showed their power and showed how great they were um is by creating monuments i'm jane perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former beijing bureau chief for the new york times i've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places somalia indonesia pakistan but nowhere as important to the world as china I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. So Hatshepsut's... Her stuff was like... The most ambitious. Her stuff was like very out there. It was massive in comparison to the previous pharaohs. Starting off, she's like, do you start small? And she's like, no, let's get bigger. Obviously. So she has the erection. Haha. So there's a great temple complex at Karnak. And, and she gets these 100 foot tall obelisks built. Two of them. So she has two of them at this temple. This is no mean feat, because they're like, they, yeah, and each of these, each of these 
weighs 450 tonnes and they have to be towed along the Nile by 27 ships with 850 oarsmen. Like, this is no mean feat. And she did stuff like all over Egypt, but the majority of the time she would concentrate around Thebes. You know, this is like the centre of um, the Thutmoside dynasty. And she builds roadways and sanctuaries at the Deir el Bira, at the Del, at the Deir el, at the Deir el Bar, at the Deir el Bari, um, which is just across from the Nile in Thebes. She erects this massive, this memorial temple, and it's used for like really special religious rites, and it is astounding. It is her masterpiece, and um. Let's just say it's kind of dramatic. So it's at the base of these limestone cliffs. And it is and it is referred to as one of the architectural wonders of the ancient world. So there's a series of terraced colonnades and courtyards that appear to ascend up the side of the mountain itself. And it is like... How do I put this? And it's... How do I put this? It's... And it's huge. It's about the size of two and a half football fields. But it's designed to look light and be graceful. Whereas like previous temples that were built by like her predecessors, they were always seen as like fortress-like. You know what I mean? So in this temple, there were all these images of Hatshepsut. Some of these statues are like 10 10 feet tall. There's Hatshepsut as a sphinx guarding the procession away. There's she's there's ones where she is in the guise of Osiris. She's sort of kneeling with offerings to the gods. She's um and like a bunch of other ones, and then somewhere she's just like walking towards, you know, and sort of other sort of devotional sort of stages. Like a good number of these statues actually survived. Um, are, some are, some didn't, obviously, because it's been, like, several thousand years. But most of these statues are, like, they're huge. And they're meant to be, like, seen from afar. Oh, and at the, the lower levels of the temple, there's, like, pools and gardens. And there's, like, really fragrant trees and bushes. And it's very pleasant. It's very tranquil and pleasant and important. So most, like, Egyptologists and archaeologists agree that... Yeah, so Senemut, the guy they thought she was banging earlier, uh, <laughs> he's, like, the official overseer, so he, it's his job to make sure this gets done. Um, but, like, it's... Off, but, like, most archaeologists and Egyptologists, like, agree that he was probably the architect of this. At this point, he's got, like... So Senemut himself actually has, like, 93 titles. Um, he was... At, he, I think he was originally the... Um, he was Neferere's tutor, as far as I remember. Yeah, so yeah. One of his titles is like the great steward of a moon, um, which means he's in, in charge of all of Karnak's building and business activities. Um, he actually has like 25 monuments himself, which is like really weird because generally non-royals do not have that. Like it's usually reserved for um, members of the royal line and so on and so forth. Yeah, so, yeah, just because, like, because he was, like, the big supporter, he was probably her confidant, you know what I mean? Side note, don't actually know what happened to Senemut, because um, he has this, like, really awesome tomb, and it's near Hatshepsut's, in the Valley of the Kings, um, but 
his body was never in it. And we don't know why, but there was like a bunch of damage to... Huh, which is weird. But anyway, um, we have no idea why or what or how. Yeah, so basically restore, restoration and building are like a really huge part of being a pharaoh. So so she in Thebes, she focuses on the temples of her divine father, the Nah. So temples on Amun-Re. So Amun-Re. Um, at the Karnak Temple Complex. So she remodels... So not only that, she she models that most of the first um hypostyle hall. Um, she adds a bark shine, and the obelisks. And this is all at the Karnak Temple. And Beni Hassan in Middle Egypt, she builds this rock cut temple. Um, it's known in Greek as Speos Artemidos, and she also when she when it comes to her tomb, she so she actually extends her father's tomb so that when they so when she is interred they are going to be together so she must have had so in order to do this like you have to think that she must have been like such a daddy's girl <laughs> she's been like such a daddy's girl she must have like really revered him if she like they believed this was the whole thing you go into the afterlife together i mean to, to want to be that close in the afterlife you know what i mean so in general the thing that perhaps you'd said is known for as well as like all the massive temples is that like her reign was generally a peaceful one. So normally the Egyptian rulers, they would defend their land against all the enemies that were the porters. Most of her foreign policy, if you will, was based on, not on war, but on trading. Although, as far as we know, there was a successful military campaign in Nubia. But um, trade-wise, there were like seaborne, there, you know, there's trading expeditions to Punt. Um, it was like, it was like a, I think it's uh which is like a trading center on the East African coast um which is beyond the Red Sea which I think is believed to be um modern Somalia so she brings back with her ivory ebony gold baboons leopard skins incense myrrh so not only does she bring back processed myrrh but also uh myrrh trees yeah so she brings back myrrh trees and these actually get planted in the gardens of Deir el-Bari. And they're supposedly still, like, there's, there, there's, like, this withered old tree stump. And it is, it's, ba- so it's outside the mortuary temple of Hatshepsut. And it's in this, it's sort of in this little cage. And it's a merch and it's this withered old stump is supposedly a mortuary from three and a half thousand years ago. <laughs> but, like, we can't check it really, um... There's like a wee sign on it which says, This tree was brought from Punt by Hapshitsut's um, expedition, which is depicted on the temple walls. Um, but we can't, like, check it because if it is real, then it's... Yeah, so trade routes are as far as Ethiopia, which is, you know, from Egypt, pretty far. So under the rule of Hatshepsut, Egypt basically prospers they've got trade going on they've got very few battles you know not so much bloodshed they're building loads of shit it's all going pretty funky so so we we think we think that Hatshepsut died around about 1458 bc um when she would be in her mid-40s but we're not entirely sure on that one so she gets buried in the valley of the kings and her father's sarcophagus is reburied in her tomb. So anyway, Thutmose III, he ascends to the throne, and he rules for, like, another 30 years. 
And just like a stepmom, he's building a bunch of shit. But like weirdly enough, in the last 10 years or so of his rule, it appears that um, that Musa Third had started to get rid of the evidence of Hatshepsut's rule. And although like the original theory was like, he destroyed everything to do with her because she stole his throne or some bullshit. But like, it was really late on. It was like in the last 10 or so years of his reign that um, like a bunch of her stuff was destroyed. Now, was it destroyed or attempted to anyway? Like, was it destroyed to sort of, you know, dampen down and extinguish the, the concept of a female ruler? Or was it a sort of closing the gap to sort of solidify his claim to the throne, like make it more like a direct line as opposed to my stepmom got it, then me, you know, that sort of way. And this is why um, scholars and Egyptologists and archaeologists had little to no knowledge of of Hatshepsut until like 1822. And in 1903, Howard Carter, we all know Howard Carter, he discovers um, Hatshepsut's sarcophagus, which uh, is like one of three, and it was empty. Like most of the tombs in in Valley of the Kings, and like in a separate tomb, um, Carter also finds these these two coffins, one of which is of Hatshepsut's wet nurse. Okay, and this anonymous, and then this other woman, anonymous, no idea. And he thought maybe this could be her. Didn't know, but anyway. So like in two thousand and six, Doctor Zahi Hawass sets out to like figure out. If who this anonymous woman in the in in this in this coffin, so basically they find this molar tooth, and the molar tooth is in a wooden box, and the wooden box says Hatshepsut on it. So you know, um, you know, it didn't really didn't really take Sherlock Holmes to figure out that one. Um, so Hawass and the Hawass and his colleagues they compare this molar tooth to the mummy's upper jaw, and it's a perfect fit. So Carter. Did find Hatshepsut way back when, and or maybe two thousand seven. It was two thousand six, two thousand seven. I don't know. Um, and it's kept in a museum in Cairo, and a life size statue of Hatshepsut. If you want to see it, um, one of the ones that did not get smashed by her stepson is on display at the Metropolitan Museum in New York City. So yeah, that is Hatshepsut, the queen who would be king. The queen who would be king. There you go, Hatshepsut, the the queen who would be king. Ha ha ha! What have we learned today? Um, label your shit. You want to make sure somebody knows who you are, or where you were from. Um, if they didn't have her name on that wee wooden box, like you know, what I mean, label your shit and you know, reach for your goals. Actually, let's make this a positive thing. Aim for what you want to do and go fucking do it. I think that's kind of kind of the goal here yeah but like there's so much we don't know about Hatshepsut because of the destruction led by Thutmose the third which is kind of a pain like she could have done so much and we literally do not know like it's it's that's neither here nor there ah so more books more books somebody got more books the more books is me I got more books today there's a website, if you're if you're living in Ireland, there's a website called um, thesecretbookstore.ie and I, I just bought 10 books <laughs> from there. It was so good. 
there was a bunch of books. I even bought a book on the Battle of Agincourt. Um, the reason I got the Battle of Agincourt is because it's one of the few things in history that I have zero knowledge about. Zero knowledge. I know nothing about it. So I thought, eh, let's talk about this. So yeah, I'll probably do, I'll probably move back to the 20th century for next week, but I will go back to, I think, the Middle Ages. I think I want to do some Middle Ages stuff, uh, just because I think it's fun. And also I have a book on Witch Hunters, which seems like it's going to be super exciting. Someone needs to stop me buying books. I feel like that's a thing right now, just like stop me buying books. So if you liked anything you heard today, if you want to go and rate and review on iTunes, it would be super appreciative. I would be so happy Um, because then if you rate and review, then more people hear me and that would be nice. It'd be nice to share the love a wee bit. And don't forget, if you want to follow me on the social medias, you can follow me on who did what now PD on Twitter. Uh, you can email me who did what now at gmail.com I forgot for a second <laughs> who did what now pod at gmail.com there's a pod there who did what now pod at gmail.com and also what's the other one what is the other one oh, okay, what is the other one oh um instagram who did what now pod and tiktok who did what now pod where I do like little snippets and stuff although I'll probably start doing a few more um instagram stuff because one of the things I talk about is the history of contraceptives, but I haven't quite gotten through all that yet. So the history of, um, but I also want to talk about the history of pornography and the history of eroticism. But um, TikTok's guidelines might make it really difficult for me to talk about. So I'll probably just, um, so I'll probably do it on Instagram instead, because that way, um, or maybe even, no, YouTube? No, maybe not yet. Oh, YouTube is so much more more complicated and more hassle. So I probably won't do that yet, but probably on Instagram. So happy thought for the week. It's it's Shrove Tuesday tomorrow and I am going to eat my weight in pancakes and I will regret nothing. Although don't be surprised if my, my Twitter is just pray for mojo <laughs> tomorrow. I had such a huge, you know what I just remembered? I had like such a huge Egyptian phase as a kid. Like to the point where my uncle bought me this um this kit with like a plaster of Paris like sort of kit mold and I could make my own sarcophagus and I did <laughs> like in there was like the sort of papyrus type paper and you know there was a whole thing about reading hieroglyphics even though like you don't really we can't really read Egyptian language per se but that's neither here nor there. Anyway, but if you have any recommendations for what you want me to cover at some point on either this or in video form in my short form videos or covering the podcast, just give me give me a wee a wee tweet or a wee message and we can talk about it. Anyway, this has been super fun. I will chat to you next week. I will talk to you next week. I will irritate your eardrums with my dulcet tones next week. <laughs> Okay, everybody, adios, au revoir, au revoir to zen, my friends. Bye. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? You get us, Queen's Podcast. And here at Queen's, we are spilling the tea on all kinds of women from history. From New Orleans voodoo queen, Marie Laveau, to Marie Antoinette, and everything in between. Each queen is paired with a cocktail recipe that will totally get you in the mood to hear the fun, dramatic, and juicy stories of fascinating women from history. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers! <laughs>